This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 3. Selected Excerpts by Diogenes Laertius. Diogenes Laertius, 200-250 A.D. It is curious how often we are dependent for our knowledge of some larger subject upon a single ancient author, who would hardly be worthy of notice, but for the accidental loss of the books composed by fitter and abler men. Thus, our only description of Greece at the close of the classical period is written by a man who describes many objects that he certainly did not see, who leaves unmentioned numberless things we wish explained, and who has a genius for so misplacing an adverb as to bring confusion to the most commonplace statement. But not even to Pausanias do we proffer such grudging gratitude and such ungrateful objurgations as to Diogenes Laertes, our chief, often our sole, authority for the lives and sayings of the philosophers. His book is a fascinating one, and even amusing, if we can forget what we so much wanted in its stead. At second or third hand, from the compendiums of the schools, rather than from the original works of the great masters themselves, Diogenes does give us a fairly intelligible sketch, as a rule, of the outward life lived by each sage. This slight frame is crammed with anecdotes, evidently culled with the most eager and uncritical hand from miscellaneous collections. Many of these stories are so fragmentary as to be pointless. Others are unquestionably attached to the wrong person. This method is at its maddest in the author's sketch of his namesake, the recluse of the tub. One of Ali Baba's jars, by the way, would give a better notion of the real hermitage. Since this philosopher had himself little character and no doctrines, the loose string of anecdotes, puns, and saucy answers suits all our needs. Throughout the work are scattered apocryphal letters and feeble poetic epigrams composed by the compiler himself. The leaning of our most unphilosophic author was apparently toward Epicurus. The loss of that teacher's own works causes us to prize doubly the extensive fragments of them preserved in this relatively copious and serious study. The lover of the great Epicurean poem of Lucretius on The Nature of Things will often be surprised to find here the source of many among the Roman poets' most striking doctrines and images. The sketch of Zeno is also an important authority on Stoicism. Instruction in these particular chapters, then, and rich diversion elsewhere, await the reader of this most gossipy, formless, and uncritical volume. The English reader, by the way, ought to be provided with something better than the Bond version. This adds a goodly harvest of ludicrous misprints and other errors of every kind to Diogenes' own mixture of borrowed wisdom and native silliness. The classical student will prefer the Didot edition by Cobay, with the Latin version in parallel columns. It has been thought desirable to offer here a version, slightly abridged, of Diogenes' chapter on Socrates. The original sources, in Plato's and Xenophon's extant works, will almost always explain, or correct, the statements of Diogenes. Such wild shots as the assertion that the plague repeatedly visited Athens, striking down every inhabitant save the temperate Socrates, hardly need a serious rejoinder. Diogenes cannot even speak with approximate accuracy of Socrates' famous demon or inward monitor. We know, on the best authority, that it prophesied nothing, even proposed nothing, but only vetoed the rasher impulses of its human companion. But to apply the tests of mere accuracy to Diogenes 
would be like criticizing Uncle Remus for his sins against English syntax. Of the author's life, we know nothing. Our assignment of him to the third century is based merely on the fact that he quotes writers of the second and is himself in turn cited by somewhat later authors. Life of Socrates, from the Lives and Sayings of the Philosophers Socrates was the son of Sophronicus, a sculptor, and Phenarete, a midwife, as Plato also states in Theatetus, and an Athenian of the Dime Alopeke. He was believed to aid Euripides in composing his dramas. Hence, Mencimachus speaks thus, This is Euripides' new play, The Phrygians, and Socrates has furnished him the sticks. And again, Euripides, Socratically patched. Callias also, in his Captives, says, Why art thou so solemn, putting on such airs? Indeed I may, the cause is Socrates. Aristophanes, in The Clouds, again remarks, And this is he, who for Euripides composed the talkative wise tragedies. He was the pupil of Anaxagoras, according to some authorities, but also of Damon, as Alexander states in his successions. After the former's condemnation, he became a disciple of Archelaus, the natural philosopher. But Doris says he was a slave and carried stones. Some say, too, that the graces on the Acropolis are his. They are clothed figures. Hence, they say, Timon, in his Silly, declares, quote, From them proceeded the stone polisher, praetor on law, enchanter of the Greeks, who taught the art of subtle argument, the nose in air, mocker of orators, half Attic, the adept in irony, end quote. For he was also clever in discussion, but the thirty tyrants, as Xenophon tells us, forbade him to teach the art of arguing. Aristophanes also brings him in on comedy, making the worse argument seem the better. He was moreover the first, with his pupil Eschines, to teach oratory. He was likewise the first who conversed about life, and the first of the philosophers who came to his end by being condemned to death. We are also told that he lent out money. At least, investing it, he would collect what was due, and then, after spending it, invest again. But Demetrius the Byzantine says it was Crito who, struck by the charm of his character, took him out of the workshop and educated him. Realizing that natural philosophy was of no interest to men, it is said, he discussed ethics in the workshops and in the agora, and used to say he was seeking whatsoever is good in human dwellings or evil. And, very often, we are told, when in these discussions he conversed too violently, he was beaten or had his hair pulled out and was usually laughed to scorn. So once, when he was kicked, and bore it patiently, someone expressed surprise. But he said, if an ass kicked me, would I bring action against him? Foreign travel he did not require, as most men do, except when he had to serve in the army. At other times, remaining in Athens, he disputed in argumentative fashion with those who conversed with him, not so as to deprive them of their belief, but to strive for the ascertainment of truth. They say Euripides gave him the works of Heraclitus and asked him, What do you think of it? And he said, What I understood is fine. I suppose what I did not understand is, too, only it needs a Delian diver. He attended also to physical training and was in excellent condition. Moreover, he went on the expedition to Amphipolis, and when Xenophon had fallen from his horse in the Battle of Delium, he picked him up and saved him. Indeed, when all the other Athenians were fleeing, he retreated slowly, turning about calmly 
and on the lookout to defend himself if attacked. He also joined the expedition to Potatea by sea, for the war prevented a march by land, and it was there he was said once to have remained standing in one position all night. There, too, it is said, he was preeminent in valor, but gave up the prize to Alcibiades, of whom he is stated to have been very fond. Ion of Chios says, moreover, that when young he visited Samos with Archelaus, and Aristotle states that he went to Delphi. Favorinus, again, in the first book of his commentaries, says he went to the Isthmus. He was also very firm in his convictions, and devoted to the democracy, as was evident from his not yielding to Cretius and his associates, when they bade him bring Leon of Salamis, a wealthy man, to them to be put to death. He was also the only one who opposed the condemnation of the ten generals. When he could have escaped from prison, too, he would not. The friends who wept at his fate, he reproved, and while in prison, he composed those beautiful discourses. He was also temperate and austere. Once, as Pamphylia tells us in the seventh book of her commentaries, Alcibiades offered him a great estate on which to build a house, and he said, If I needed sandals, and you offered me a hide from which to make them for myself, I should be laughed at if I took it. Often, too, beholding the multitude of things for sale, he would say to himself, How many things I do not need! He used constantly to repeat aloud these iambic verses, But silver plate and garb of purple dye to actors are of use, but not in life. He disdained the tyrants, Archelaus of Macedon, Scopus of Cranon, Eurylochus of Melissa, not accepting gifts from them, nor visiting them. He was so regular in his way of living that he was frequently the only one not ill when Athens was attacked by the plague. Aristotle says he wedded two wives, the first, Xantippe, who bore him Lamprocles, and the second, Myrto, daughter of Aristides the Just, whom he received without dowry, and by whom he had Sophronicus and Menexenus. Some, however, say he married Myrto first, and some again that he had them both at once, as the Athenians, on account of scarcity of men, passed a law to increase the population, permitting anyone to marry one Athenian woman and have children by another. So Socrates did this. He was a man also able to disdain those who mocked him. He prided himself on his simple manner of living and never exacted any pay. He used to say, He who ate with best appetite had least need of delicacies, and He who drank with best appetite had least need to seek a draught not at hand, and He who had fewest needs was nearest the gods. This indeed we may learn from the comic poets, who, in their very ridicule, covertly praise him. Thus Aristophanes says, quote, O thou who hast righteously set thy heart on attaining to noble wisdom, how happy the life wilt thou lead among the Athenians and the Hellenes! Shrewdness and memory both are thine, and energy unwearied of mind, and never art thou tired from standing or from walking. By cold thou art not vexed at all, nor dost thou long for breakfast. Wine thou dost shun, and gluttony, and every other folly." Emesius also, bringing him upon the stage in the philosopher's cloak, says, quote, O Socrates, best among few men, most foolish of many, thou also art come unto us? Thou art a patient soul. But where didst get that doublet? That wretched thing in mockery was presented by the cobblers. Yet though so hungry, he never, however, has stooped to flatter a mortal. End quote. This disdain and arrogance in Socrates has also been exposed by Aristophanes, who says, quote, Along the streets you haughtily strut, your eyes roll hither and thither, 
barefooted, enduring discomforts, you go with countenance solemn among us. End quote. And yet sometimes, suiting himself to the occasion, he dressed finely, as when, for instance, in Plato's Symposium, he goes to Agathon's. He was a man able both to urge others to action and to dissuade them. Thus, when he conversed with Theodotus on knowledge, he sent him away inspired, as Plato says. Again, when Euthyphron had indicted his own father for manslaughter, by conversing with him on piety, Socrates turned him from his purpose. Lysias also, by his exhortations, he rendered a most moral man. He was moreover skillful in fitting his arguments to the circumstances. He changed the feeling of his son Lamprocles when he was enraged with his mother, as Xenophon somewhere states. Plato's brother Glaucon, who wished to be active in politics, he dissuaded because of his inexperience, as Xenophon states. But Charmides, on the other hand, who was well fitted, he urged on. He roused the spirit of Iphocrates, the general, also, pointing out to him the cocks of Medeus, the barber, fighting those of Callias. He said it was strange that every man could tell easily how many sheep he had, but could not call by name the friends whom he had acquired. So negligent were men in that regard. Once, seeing Euclid devoting great pains to captious arguments, he said, Oh, Euclid, you will be able to manage sophists, but men, never. For he thought hair-splitting on such matters useless, as Plato says in his Euthydemus. When Glaucon offered him some slaves, so that he might make a profit on them, he did not take them. He praised leisure as the best of possessions, as Xenophon also says in his Symposium. He used to say, too, that there was but one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. Wealth and birth, he said, had no value, but were, on the contrary, holy and evil. So, when someone told him, Antisthenes' mother was a Thracian, Do you think, quoth he, so fine a man must be the child of two Athenians? When Phaedo had been captured in war and shamefully enslaved, Socrates bade Crito ransom him and made him a philosopher. He also learned, when already an old man, to play the lyre, saying there was no absurdity in learning what one did not know. He used to dance frequently, too, thinking this exercise helpful to health. This Xenophon tells us in the Symposium. He used to say that his demon foretold future events, and that he knew nothing except the very fact that he did know nothing. Those who bought at great price what was out of season, he said, had no hope of living till the season came around. Once, being asked what was virtue in a young man, he said, to avoid excess in all things. He used to say one should study geometry, that is, surveying, just enough to be able to measure land in buying and selling it. When Euripides, in the Og, said of virtue, quote, these things were better left to lie untouched, unquote, he rose up and left the theater, saying it was absurd to think it proper to seek for a slave if he was not to be found, but to let virtue perish unregarded. When his advice was asked whether to marry or not, he said, whichever you do, you will regret it. He used to say that he marveled that those who made stone statues took pains to make the stones as like the man as possible, but took none with themselves that they might not be like the stone. He thought it proper for the young to look constantly in the mirror, so that if they had beauty, they might prove themselves worthy of it, and if they were ugly, that they might conceal their ugliness by their accomplishments. When he had invited rich friends to dinner, and Xantippa was ashamed, 
He said, Do not be troubled. If they are sensible, they will bear with us. If not, we shall care nothing for them. Most men, he said, lived to eat, but he ate to live. As to those who showed regard for the opinions of the ignoble multitude, he said it was as if a man should reject one tetradrachm as worthless, but accept a heap of such coins as good. When Eschenes said, I am poor and have nothing else, but I give you myself, he said, Do you then not realize you are offering me the greatest of gifts? To him who said, The Athenians have condemned you to death, he responded, And nature has condemned them also thereto, though some ascribe this to Anaxagoras. When his wife exclaimed, You die, innocent, he answered, Do you wish I were guilty? When a vision in sleep seemed to say, Three days hence thou wilt come to the fertile region of Theia, he said to Eschenes, On the third day I shall die. When he was to drink the hemlock, Apollodorus gave him a fine garment to die in. But why, quoth he, is this garment of mine good enough to live in, but not to perish in? To him who said, So-and-so speaks ill of you, he answered, Yes, he has not learned to speak well. When Antisthenes turned the ragged side of his cloak to the light, he remarked, I see your vanity through your cloak. He declared we ought to put ourselves expressly at the service of the comedy writers, quote, For if they say anything about us that is true, they will correct us. And if what they say be untrue, it does not concern us at all. End quote. When Xantippa had first reviled him, then drenched him with water, Didn't I tell you, said he, it was thundering and would soon rain? To Alcibiades, who said Xantippa's scolding was unbearable, he replied, I am accustomed to it, as to a constantly creaking pulley. And you, he added, endure the cackling of geese. Alcibiades said, Yes, for they bring me eggs and goslings. And Xantippa, retorted Socrates, bears me children. Once, when she pulled off his cloak in the agora, his friends advised him to defend himself with force. Yes, said he, by Jove, so that as we fight, each of you may cry, Well done, Socrates! Good for you, Xantippa! He used to say he practiced on Xantippa just as trainers do with spirited horses. Quote, just as they, if they master them, are able to control any other horse, so I, who am accustomed to Xantippa, shall get on easily with anyone else. End quote. It was for such words and acts as this that the Delphic priestess bore witness in his honor, giving to Chiraphon that famous response, Wisest of all mankind is Socrates. He became extremely unpopular on account of this oracle, but also because he convicted of ignorance those who had a great opinion of themselves, particularly Anitus, as Plato also says in the Mino. For Anitus, enraged at the ridicule Socrates brought upon him, first urged Aristophanes and the rest on to attack him, and then induced Miletus to join in, indicting him for impiety and for corrupting the young men. Plato, in the Apology, says there were three accusers, Anitus, Lycon, and Miletus. Anitus, being incensed at him in behalf of the artisans and politicians, Lycon for the orators, and Miletus for the poets, all of whom Socrates pulled to pieces. The sworn statement of the plaintiffs ran as follows, for it is still recorded. Favorinus says in the state archives, quote, Socrates is guilty, not honoring the gods whom the state honors, but introducing other strange divinities, and he is further guilty of corrupting the youth. Penalty, death, end quote. 
When Lysias wrote a speech for his defense, he read it and said, quote, A fine speech, Lysias, but not suited for me, end quote. For indeed it was rather a lawyer's plea than a philosopher's. Lysias said, But why, if the speech is a fine one, should it not be suitable for you? Socrates replied, Would not fine robes, then, and sandals be unfitting for me? While he was on trial, it is stated that Plato ascended the bima and began, Being the youngest, O men of Athens, of all who ever came upon the bima. But at this point the judges cried out, Come down, come down! So he was convicted by 281 votes more than were cast for his acquittal. And when the judges considered what penalty or fine he should receive, he said he would pay five and twenty drachma. Eubolides said he agreed to pay one hundred, but when the judges expressed their indignation aloud, he said, For what I have done, I consider the proper return to be support at the public expense in the town hall. But they condemned him to death, the vote being larger than before by eighty. Not many days later, he drank the hemlock in the prison, after uttering many noble words recorded by Plato in the Phaedo. According to some, he wrote a poem beginning, Greeting, Apollo of Delos, and Artemis, youthful and famous. He also versified, not very successfully, a fable of Aesop's, which began, Aesop once to the people who dwell in the city of Corinth said, Let virtue be judged not by the popular voice. So he passed from among men. But straightway the Athenians repented of their action, so that they closed the gymnasia, and exiling the other accusers, put Miletus to death. Socrates they honored with a statue of bronze. The work of Lysippus, which was set up in the Pompeian, Anitus in exile, entering Heraclea, was warned out of the town that very day. The Athenians have had the same experience not only in Socrates' case, but with many others. Indeed, it is stated that they find Homer as a madman, and adjudged Tyreus to be crazy. Euripides reproves them in the Palamedes, saying, Ye have slain, ye have slain the all-wise, the harmless nightingale of the muses. That is so, but Philochorus says Euripides died before Socrates. Socrates and Euripides were both disciples of Anaxagoras. It appears to me, too, that Socrates did talk on natural philosophy. In fact, Xenophon says so, though he states that Socrates held discourse only upon moral questions. Plato, indeed, in the Apology, mentioning Anaxagoras and other natural philosophers, himself says of them things whereof Socrates denies any knowledge, yet it is all ascribed to Socrates. Aristotle states that a certain mage from Syria came to Athens, and among other prophecies concerning Socrates, foretold that his death would be a violent one. The following verses upon him are our own. Drink in the palace of Zeus, O Socrates, seeing that truly thou by a god wert called wise, who is wisdom itself, foolish Athenians, who to thee offered the potion of hemlock, through thy lips themselves, draining the cup to the dregs. As translated for A Library of the World's Best Literature by William C. Lawton. Examples of Greek Wit and Wisdom Bias once he was on a voyage with some impious men. The vessel was overtaken by a storm, and they began to call upon the gods for aid. But Bias said, Be silent, so that they may not discover that you are on board our ship. He declared it was pleasanter to decide a dispute between his enemies than between friends. For, of two friends, he explained, one is sure to become my enemy, but of two enemies I make one friend. Plato. It is said Socrates, in a dream, 
seemed to be holding on his knees a signet, which suddenly grew wings and flew aloft, singing sweetly. Next day, Plato came to him, and Socrates said he was the bird. It is told that Plato, once seeing a man playing dice, reproved him. The stake is but a trifle, said the other. Yes, but, responded Plato, the habit is no trifle. Once, when Xenocrates came to Plato's house, the latter bade him scourge his slave for him, explaining that he could not do it himself because he was angry. Again, he said to one of his slaves, You would have had a beating if I were not angry. Aristippus. Dionysus once asked him why it is that the philosophers are seen at rich men's doors, not the rich men at the doors of the sages. Aristippus replied, Because the wise realize what they lack, but the rich do not. On a repetition of the taunt on another occasion, he retorted, Yes, and physicians are seen at sick men's doors, yet none would choose to be the patient rather than the leech. Once, when overtaken by a storm on a voyage to Corinth, he was badly frightened. Somebody said to him, We ordinary folk are not afraid, but you philosophers play the coward. Yes, was his reply, we are not risking the loss of any such wretched life as yours. Someone reproached him for his extravagance in food. If you could buy these same things for three pence, wouldn't you do it? Oh, yes. Why, then? Tis not I who am too fond of the luxurious food, but you that are over-fond of your money. Aristotle. When asked, what is hope? He answered, the dream of a man awake. Asked what grows old quickest, he replied, gratitude. When told that someone had slandered him in his absence, he said, he may beat me, too, in my absence. Being asked how much advantage the educated have over the ignorant, he replied, as much as the living over the dead. Someone asked him why we spend much time in the society of the beautiful. That, he said, is a proper question for a blind man. Once, being asked how we should treat our friends, he said, as we would wish them to treat us. Ask what a friend is, he answered, one soul abiding in two bodies. Theophrastus. To a man who at a feast was persistently silent, he remarked, If you are ignorant, you are behaving wisely. If you are intelligent, you are behaving foolishly. To Demetrius. It was a saying of his that to friends in prosperity we should go when invited, but to those in misfortune unbidden. When told that the Athenians had thrown down his statues, he answered, but not my character, for which they erected them. Antisthenes. Someone asked him what he gained from philosophy. He replied, the power to converse with myself. He advised the Athenians to pass a vote that asses were horses. When they thought that irrational, he said, but certainly your generals are not such because they've learned anything, but simply because you have elected them. Diogenes. He used to say that when in the course of his life he saw pilots and physicians and philosophers, he thought man the most sensible of animals. But when he saw interpreters of dreams and soothsayers and those who paid attention to them and those puffed up by fame or wealth, he believed no creature was sillier than man. Some said to him, You're an old man. Take life easy now. He replied, And if I were running the long-distance race, should I, when nearing the goal, slacken, and not rather exert myself? When he saw a child drink out of his hands, he took the cup out of his wallet and flung it away, saying, A child has beaten me in simplicity. He used to argue thus, All things belong to the gods. The wise are the friends of the gods. 
The goods of friends are common property. Therefore, all things belong to the wise. To one who argued that motion was impossible, he made no answer, but rose and walked away. When the Athenians urged him to be initiated into the mysteries, assuring him that in Hades those who were initiated have the front seats, he replied, It is ludicrous if Agesilaus and Epimonides are to abide in the mud, and some ignoble wretches who are initiated are to dwell in the isles of the blessed. Plato made the definition, quote, Man is a two-footed, featherless animal, end quote, and was much praised for it. Diogenes plucked a fowl and brought it into his school, saying, This is Plato's man. So the addition was made to the definition, quote, with broad nails, end quote. When a man asked him what was the proper hour for lunch, he said, If you are rich, when you please, if you are poor, when you can get it. He used often to shout aloud that an easy life had been given by the gods to men, but they had covered it from sight in their search for honey cakes and perfumes and such things. The musician who was always left alone by his hearers, he greeted with, Good morning, cock. When the others asked him the reason, he said, Because your music starts everybody up. When an exceedingly superstitious man said to him, With one blow I will break your head, he retorted, And with a sneeze at your left side, I will make you tremble. When asked what animal had the worst bite, he said, Of wild beasts, the sycophant, and of tame creatures, the flatterer. Being asked when was the proper time to marry, he responded, For young men, not yet, and for old men, not at all. When he was asked what sort of wine he enjoyed drinking, he answered, Another man's. Someone advised him to hunt up his runaway slave, but he replied, It is ridiculous if Manes lives without Diogenes, but Diogenes cannot live without Manes. When asked why men give to beggars, but not to philosophers, he said, because they expect themselves to become lame and blind, but philosophers, never. Cleantus. When a comic actor apologized for having ridiculed him from the stage, he answered gently, they would be preposterous. When Bacchus and Hercules bear the raillery of poets without showing anger, if I should be indignant, when I chance to be attacked. Pythagoras, from his precepts. Do not stir the fire with a sword. Do not devour your heart. Always have your bed packed up. Do not walk in the main street. Do not cherish birds with crooked talons. Avoid a sharp sword. When you travel abroad, look not back at your own borders. Consider nothing exclusively your own. Destroy no cultivated tree or harmless animal. Modesty and decorum consist in never yielding to laughter and yet not looking stern. All of these translated for A Library of the World's Best Literature by William C. Lawton. End of Section 3